this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue. And you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you wanna scale up, maybe you wanna sell, maybe you wanna bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you wanna pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire, and then you're going to get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. Hey, this next episode is with Lois Melbourne from Acquire Solutions. So listen, the beginning of this interview is going to feel a little stilted because Lois and I don't know one another and we were just sort of trying to get to know each other a little bit on the call. So I think for the first 10 or 15 minutes, it feels maybe a little bit stilted, but I think it's worth sticking it out because Lois touches on some really important points. She talks about the importance of escrow and we talk about the definition of a warrant. She talks about actually telling employees and the difficulty it actually brought her to tears the process of going through and telling her staff that she'd sold her 85 employee company acquire solutions uh she does a much better job of saying it than i will so i'll get out of the way and let her talk about it here's lois melbourne lois melbourne welcome to built to sell radio Good morning. So tell me about Acquire Solutions. What did you guys do? Acquire was a software company and we did talent management software. So succession planning, workforce analytics, um, a visualization of workforce data. I'm lost. So like, imagine I'm like a nine-year-old. You're trying to explain to me what your software did. So practically what, like, give me a user case maybe. So if a company, typically a large company anywhere in the world was wanting to plan who was going to be the next CEO, the next vice president, the next CFO, and they were looking at what happens in the future based on who the employees are now, our software helped them organize that and plan that and you know work through those processes. Interesting. Um, I didn't even know there was software to do that. I thought that was just like yeah. HR and the CEO like putting their heads together and kind of scoring people. But in your case, there was a software. How did you get into that? Um, well, I married a, a, a brilliant software engineer. Um, my husband had our original product idea. Um, the original product was creating organization charts from HR data. And this was back in the early 90s, and we needed to, uh, nobody was doing it. Everyone was drawing boxes and putting lines together and kind of creating that who reports to who. And, and we created a product that could do it from data. And 
and he started working on the project. And I said, hey, this is cool. If you build that, I can sell it. Hmm. And that's what we did. And that's how you guys divided labor. He was he was the software developer. You were the sort of front end salesperson. Yes, yes, and and through the whole um, development of of the company, that's where our talents kind of complemented each other. But we uh, kind of did a divide and conquer. Was it tough to work with your husband? No, it was wonderful. I don't think like I I worked with my wife for about two weeks, and it almost ended our marriage. It was <laughs> it was tough. We uh, I I don't know. We're we're not men for it, I guess. But uh, it's a tough gig to. I, I mean, in my opinion, it's tough. But you guys made it work. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's never a middle of the road for couples. It's always a oh heck no, or absolutely, this works. You know, there's been mom and pop operations for a long time. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So how how big in terms of number of employees did you get acquire up to by the time you sold it? Like how many people were you employing? When we sold, we were at 85 employees. We had around 3,500 customers around the world. We were in 123 countries, our customers were. Wow, and and... Tell me about the sale. So did you guys put it on the market? Was there some sort of triggering event that made you want to sell the business? We did not have it on the market. We worked with um, companies all over the world and resellers, and we'd had people come and talk to us at different times saying, you know, hey, do you, you know, would you be interested in selling? And we really weren't. Um but we had somebody come knocking on the door and it was right as we won a big industry award for one of our products. And um, we were kind of like, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. They seem like a very logical strategic buyer. And they actually put a number in front of us and we said, oh, okay, yes, um, let's talk. <laughs> What was it about them that you thought that they were logical or strategic? Well, we sold to a private equity firm that was doing a roll-up of technology companies and um, all within the human resource space. And it fit. Uh, We used the same technology to code our products. Uh, We had complementary products. We had a few competing products. Um, but it seemed like a, a good logical fit as we looked at the landscape. Um, there was a lot of consolidation going on in the human resource technology space. So there was also a little bit of, hmm, who, who else would be a candidate? And some people had already done some acquisitions. And, and so it just seemed to be a logical fit. How did that number get presented to you, Lois? I mean, on a piece of paper, did they say it verbally? Like, what was that like? Um, They alluded to some numbers verbally. And then, you know, to kind of keep, they kind of gave us a window. And and, um, we had some one-on-one discussions. And then they gave us a letter of intent. How did with they, the actual number. How did they know 
like, did you share with them revenue profitability numbers? Like how, how were they able to estimate what they were willing to pay for you without in, in those initial conversations? Yeah, they did have a um, cursory set of our financials. Got it. And how were you made comfortable enough with them to share that with them? Um, I did some research on the organization and on the people. Um, I knew the companies that they had already bought and combined together. Um, I didn't know personally people that were in those organizations, but I was very familiar with you know, transaction they had done a couple of years earlier. Uh, but it was it was a combination of kind of doing research on the private equity firm as well as you know the one-on-one conversations that we that we had getting things rolling. Got it. And so did you go out and seek a second or third offer at this time or how, or did you work directly and negotiate directly with this private equity firm? Um, we did talk to some other companies. Um, but it was through an advisor, not us directly reaching out to other companies. Um, the advisor that we had was priceless for us. Um, and it, he you know, kind of put word out and talked to some other organizations. And, and as we you know, put the proverbial book together, um, the summaries were floated to a couple of other companies. Um, but we still wound up with the best feel for the company that we sold to. So if I'm understanding the chronology here, you're going along your merry way. You're a relatively young couple. Uh, things are great. You're employing 85 people. All of a sudden you get this offer from a private equity company that looks legit because they're rolling up in your space. Instead of getting in bed with that one company right away, you then hired uh, an advisor and sort of sort of took the company more formally to market. Is that right? Yes. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so what were the other offers that was the, what were the other sort of offers or people conversations that you were having? Uh, did any of those sort of get more formalized with a letter of intent? No, they didn't. We didn't take anything else to letter of intent. We were looking at that point then at, um, kind of deal structure. And what would what would it look like if we did something with another company? Um, but we did not get anything all the way to another offer because we liked the one that we got. And we thought it was um, uh, very fair. Now, I, I realize there's some sensitivity. We talked before I hit record around the fact you can't share a lot of the details on the actual offer price and so forth. But what was it about the offer structure that you liked uh, from the private equity company? Uh, numbers aside, what, what about the structure itself that you liked? Um, the organization allowed us to continue on. We had a very strong brand and it... Um, the initial structure was a, you know, keeping our brand in place for at least initial period of time. And that actually lasted about 14, 16 months or so. We kept um, very distinctly kept it separate and all total. The brand continued within the roll up about a little more than two years. Um, and we felt like that was very important because there was a lot of value 
in our, our market presence. Um, and so that was valuable. It was, it was definitely a tough decision in the sense that, you know, this was our baby and we did need to make a decision on whether or not we were going to let things change a great deal. We had an incredible culture. And so being able to run independently, at least for a while, allowed us to kind of keep that in place. Of course, you know, that that, that never lasts forever. They they buy you for reasons and and you know they want some of your goodness to rub off on in this case on the rest of the organization. So change did occur, but we we did like that structure. So the one part of the deal that you liked was the ability to keep the brand for a year or in your case 14 months. What else, when, when you say brand, I mean, brand is not necessarily, brand is sort of the public iteration of the company. There's also everything kind of below, uh, you know, backstage, if you will, uh, you know, office space, employee reporting structure. I mean, do, do they let you, when I, when you say run independently, are you referring to everything underneath the brand or just the brand was something you got a chance to? In the, in the, uh, the simple answer, is we ran independent other than, of course, our financial um, component. They, um, there was a division of the company because private equity firm was run out of Boston and the, the parent company was in Boston. The, um, there was an office here in uh, the Dallas area that was also part of their uh, organization. and. We ran uh, independently, but yet we were able to work together synergistically for sales, et cetera. So it allowed us to be almost a subsidiary company. What else did you like about their deal structure? Uh, the dollar amount was good, um, although I did I did come back and so they gave us a price and I came back and I said, what, I want a little bit more. And our advisor was like, and how, how do I, and how do I you know, justify that? I said, cause I want it. Um, cause I'm not going to just accept the first offer that, you know, comes across the, the deck and, uh, and that worked. Um, and it was, it was a good thing. Um, the, I may not be answering entirely your question, but I do want to, point out the fact that the reason I can't discuss the actual numbers is that was part of our agreement. And we wrapped that into our transaction. And part of it was our desire to keep things private. We had been a privately held company, um, uh, family owned 100%. So we wanted to kind of protect ourselves and, and our family, our son. So we kept those things quiet and then in that then they said okay if that's if that's confidential then these things are confidential so the the whole you know financial side of the transaction was locked up in a confidentiality got it got it got it how how did the money um affect your world uh if you will you know what i'm asking like how did it affect your life Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, part of the decision was we had very much a family first uh, culture 
and the decision making to do the deal was looking at those, you know, that money and saying, you know, this lets us put our family in a good stead. Uh, it, it allowed us to effectively retire in our 40s. And that is, uh, that's a, a blessing. We have a 16 year old son and it's nice to be a little bit more available to him now than I had been, you know, previously. Tried to control my travel, but I still did a lot of it. So it's nice to, um, uh, to keep tabs on him, but also to be available for him. Uh, I did get to build my dream home, which was lovely. Um, after we left the company. And so uh, it's, it's comforting. Interesting. Comforting is an interesting word for sure. So you've got a trophy in the, in the house. You're close to, uh, to your son and, and you've got more control over your time. Uh, was there a downside of the money? Um, it was nerve wracking, very, very nerve wracking. Um, but we are very pragmatic people. And so I think that, uh, a lot of people other than, than the home, I think a lot of people wouldn't know that, see that much difference in who we are and what we do. Um, but it has allowed us to, you know, branch out and do do other things that we want to do. Got it. Got it. So let's get into the negotiation again. So so you've got this letter of intent. There's a big number on the page. Uh, you know, it's enough to retire. What happened next? I mean, how was the actual negotiation itself? Itself, you 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 up the the price on the letter of intent. There there must have been a a due diligence process of some sort. What was that like? Um, due diligence was painful uh, for me. So much detail. Um, one of the things as far as giving advice that I would have is make sure that everything that you've got is digital, every contract, every agreement, um, that it's clean and simple. Uh, if you're early into your organization, Make sure that your contracts are as standard as possible. And if you make changes to your contracts, it, it, catalog those because um, I'm putting this in the phrase of, of uh, tips, but it's because those are the things that we had to go through. You know, every contract that had an exception had to be documented and they had to review those. Um, clean and simple is the best yeah. being able to serve up everything electronically, which we had, we had all of our contracts uh, had already been scanned if they were only in, um, in print form, which is a lot because we were an 18 year old company. So it, they, they went through a lot of information. Um, and then things that kind of, that we had to negotiate were, like our warrants and protections, things like, you know, the money that went into escrow were to cover things like sales tax. If, if a state, um, if we found that we had not paid sales tax in a state that we maybe should pay, because in software, you know, every state has different rules. Um, 
So we had a couple of states that there was some sales tax liability, not major by any means, but that was in our warrants that said, you know, we owe those um, taxes. And so after the sale, there was uh, a, an internal audit of all of the different states that we did business with, and some we were already paying sales tax in, and some we were not. So um, that was all gone through. But I think the the tough one that I didn't catch was, you know, all the warrants kind of went in their favor. And the one that I wish I had put for myself was that we did some collections on some really old payables that most would have written off. And I didn't get any benefit from that. That money just all went into you know, the, the corporation's pockets, even though in the big picture, the way the deal was structured, if you've had revenue, then it's, then, you know, there was, there was compensation notes off of the multiple. So I wish I had done a little bit more thinking about, okay, I'm giving them protection, but where should I maybe protect myself? Where's my upside after this due diligence is done? Okay, so I want to I want to dig in there a little bit. So uh, we'll get back to that issue around collections on on old payables. But first, explain in layman's terms what a warrant is. I'll try. Um, <laughs> the um, the it's a protection for the buyer that is saying as we go through your. Process. Yes, there's due diligence, but there might be some things that they don't know whether or not the company uh, that is selling actually still owes or if there's a, a, let's say, a legal case develops during the transaction and it's about something that happened before the transaction started then it's the responsibility of the seller to take care of that. It's kind of like when you sell a house and they say, okay, but you, you know, we're going to do this inspection, but if we find out there's a leaky roof, you're going to have to pay for the leaky roof. You know, it's that kind of and, and equation. In, and in particular, it, it gets down to like, if you knew about the leaky roof and you chose not to tell us about the leaky roof. Yes, yes. Those, those, as well as issues like tax liabilities in, in states and so forth. But uh, oftentimes, uh, I think with warrants, it, it, it can often be the things that you, uh, uh, you know and you've, you've, you've obscured or chose not to tell or told half-truths around that can get really, you know, really come back to haunt you. And that they're yes. trying to protect against in particular. Interesting. And so in your case, um, you put some money, you used another word called escrow or escrow, which again, a lot of people listening to this for, may, may not have heard before or may have heard, but not are, are clear on the definition. So just describe to, to folks what, what, uh, what an escrow uh, is and, and how money might be put in escrow in, in, an, in a transaction or why it might be put into escrow. So when we sold... The, the business and we received our cash. There was a carve out of money that was um, designated to come to us, but it went into an escrow account that was protected. It wasn't our, at that point, it, 
it wasn't in our name and it wasn't in their name. It was kind of being held off in a you know separate account and it was to cover anything that that would arise during the uh, the post transaction so that if there was money due, um, it the money came out of of what would essentially be my bucket money coming to me. Um, but it would get paid out of that account. And then after, uh, uh, and it, some of it was staged, you know, we got some of it within a year and then the rest of it, um, and then another tranche in two years, and then another, the last of it, two and a half years. That gave the buying company time to make sure that all taxes had been paid, all expenses were paid, that there wasn't anything hidden um and you know it's it's designed so that people don't just take their money and run and and leave the you know the buyer with expenses that they were not expecting so it sounds like there were some claims against those escrow funds by the buyer um there was a tiny amount um there was of uh, three states that we had very minor business in um that were um that we did have some sales tax and that did those funds did come out of the escrow and and lois it would help people to understand on a proportional basis what percentage of your money uh that you got on closing day would have been put in escrow like are we talking five percent ten percent fifty percent it was eight eight percent eight percent Got it, and and that seems to be pretty typical of, of other deals we've we've looked at. Uh, somewhere around that ten percent figure seems to be about where where people land, um, give or take. Interesting. And so let's get into this this one issue. So so you're basically representing and warning if you do the reps and warrants uh, that you're you know you're you you are not aware of any liabilities and so forth, and and you're representing and warning. A, a set of things about the company, but in your case, you you wanted the other side of, to to warrant some things. Um, in this case, in particular, around this collection of payables. So I'm a little bit fuzzy on this. So you had maybe maybe just describe why having a, a warrant around the, the being able to collect late payables would have been would have benefited you. We did a lot of international business, so. To 25 to 30% of our um, revenue was in Europe and we had, and then we had more elsewhere around the world, but we had a, um, a partner that had a great deal of outstanding revenue and some of it that we weren't even aware of at the transaction they had done, you know, in software. So there was, there was some, a reporting that had not been done back to us in a timely manner. And we were discovering this about the time of the sale. And we uh, started chasing that um, bucket of payables pretty hard. And I worked really diligently to collect that revenue. And it was not on our books at the time of the sale. So it was not part of the equation for the multiple. And so it did not get added into what funds were mine. 
Got and it. then we collected it. How material was this on a percentage terms? For the deal of the business, negligible. For just money in the family pockets, it was um, it was a good chunk of change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So as you look back on the deal, what advice would you have for other people potentially going through something similar? Have a good advisor, um, somebody that's your champion in that process. Um, give me, can you give me like a tangible, real life example? And I don't mean platitudes, but like something actually specific that your advisor, like where they added value, like something very specific. There's several times where I would get very nervous about the transaction and what was being, um, you know, what was being managed. And, and for example, as we would set up the, um, the contracts and they were not happy with um, some of the flexibility we had had in some of our contracts and they got the, the buyers got kind of the lawyers got a little um, in my face, in my opinion about it. And so I got, I got really worked up, you know, and Stephen kind of you know, talked me off the ledge and explained to me what the differences are and also explained to me, you know, why they're pushing back and gave me advice on how to push back on them. Um, and that was the case several times when, you know, when the lawyers want and want and want, um, they could be quite intimidating and you don't necessarily want to go back to your lawyer with what, you know, putting lawyers against lawyers just typically means the price goes up and there's more words in the documents. (laughs) So before things would go to my lawyer, then my advisor and I would talk about things and he's like, no, push back on this. You need to ask for that. Or no, they're being reasonable when they're asking for certain terms. So it it was a good, the fact that he'd done so many transactions, he knew what was normal and what I could probably push back on. Um, And he also brought to me different experts that I needed. So as we went through, um, changing the way taxation was managed and, and you know, doing different calculations for where the actual value of the company was. Um, he brought different advisors in that knew how to manage things in a deal process. Vendors I, I never would have known in that, say, my accountant wouldn't have been able to manage. Hmm. Interesting. What was the, the biggest difference between the letter of intent and the final share purchase agreement that you signed? Um, Top numbers stayed the same. So I guess really from the LOI, I mean, it really just covered the top number. Um, So I think in general, we stayed pretty in sync. Um, I think the changes would be more around all of the different detail of what was, you know, what was guaranteed as a number and 
what maybe went in as being at risk in an escrow. Although our books were so clean that that it was it was very that was very clean cut, but there were times when it seemed kind of scary that some of the stuff that that might go into risk. And I say that more from the perspective of other people, it might not have surprised them that, um, you know, that a company might look at international business in a different way than they looked at domestic business where we, you know, where we saw, you know, no difference in our risk in some countries, et cetera. They like, no, we just want to write off, you know, Italy because they're so hard to collect. And I'm like, no, I have a great history of collecting in Italy. So no, we're not going to make that a different risk factor. Um, and it's, so I think the detail was where differences came in or where the surprises, I guess, if you will, came in. What proportion of the deal was in an earnout? Um, a very small. I had been advised by a lot of my buddies that had sold businesses to get everything you want on the first bite of the apple. And earnout can be there great, but um, I wasn't holding my breath for any earnout. I stayed with the company for two years, um, which is a um, a very long time for an entrepreneur. And that's all I really want to say about that. <laughs> we'll read between the lines on that one. You're yeah. not the first to, uh, to say that working after sale is, uh, is tough. What was the emotional, how would you characterize your sort of emotional um, journey over those two years that you worked uh, as an employee? I mean, there must have been a high when you first deposited the check. That must have been sort of a high. But just describe it for you. I don't put words in your mouth. Um, well, high is, is, is a great um, a, a great word to use. I think it's also, um, it was quite emotional because, you know, we had to calm our staff. Our culture was very important to us. It was very um family-oriented, very innovative, very um, quick for making decisions, but we had a real rhythm and people were very concerned about losing that. And so it, um, it, it was a surprise to our staff that we sold. And so that was, um, you know, it, it took some effort to, to help people feel this is okay. And it didn't take long, um, but it was it was a jolt. And and then there were um, ups and downs as far as the, you know, the whole process of working for someone else, um, telling customers because that made customers nervous and making sure the communication was good about, you know, hey, we're here. The products are here, you know, um, so th there were certainly some challenges in that that was a bit of a roller coaster leaving was very hard um on on one side the you know stepping away from staff um, that meant so much to us was that was quite a challenge do you regret selling your business no i don't 
Um, there were times when I uh, struggled with the staff's emotions. We were very close to so many people and I struggled with that, but the decision to uh, make the right decision for our family was definitely the hands down winner. And so that is good. I think also the fact that it's, you know, it gives us opportunity to do new things. So, so that is, has been very good. There's, I won't deny that there's struggles with losing the corporate identity that you marry yourself to when you run a company. Um, so it hasn't been without its pain, but I've never regretted it. Help me square something, Lewis, because you know, the single most common question I get when I do talks uh, to entrepreneurs um, in, in audiences is, is how and when should I tell my staff? And, you know, when I answer that question, I, I sound like a mercenary because in my opinion, you, you, you know, you don't really, uh, or at least I didn't tell any of my employees with the exception of maybe one or two senior, um, people right up until the check cleared. And it made me feel personally a, a bit like a cheating spouse. Uh, like I was running around with somebody, uh, being unfa unfaithful to a team. And I never thought of my employees as family members. And I never thought I was creating a sort of family friendly environment. In your case, you, I mean, you, to your own, in your own words, you call it a family environment, 85 people, really family centric. I mean, that must have felt, that must have felt kind of dirty. It's, maybe dirty is not the right word, but what, I mean, how would, how did it make you feel? <laughs> Everything you just said. <laughs> you're, you're very correct um, in, in that depiction, I think, for a lot of people. It was very, very difficult because I had a very open, authentic uh, communication style with my staff. I was very open of, you know, being able to walk in and say, OK, guys, I screwed up, you know, on whatever project or whatever we were working on. I mean, people um, really counted on me to be uh, a lot of an open book, I guess. And so this was a very difficult time. Um, the good thing was it was a very, we had a very rapid transaction by most people's definition. Um, uh, initial discussions in October, uh, LOI in January and closed in April. Uh, so it was, almost ripping off a band-aid although it was um it felt like a decade sometimes going through the process only my senior management knew and they only knew when i needed them to know so some of them only had you know weeks to adjust and then the rest of the staff found out the day we introduced the uh, the executives of the private equity firm and it was it was difficult. Um, it was exciting, but it was difficult. Um, I did cry when I when I told my staff. Um, and part of it was relief, and part of it was excitement. And part of it was because I knew I had just sent a lightning bolt through the room. 
And how would you characterize their emotions? Um, nervous, very nervous and shock. Um, I think the opportunity of being part of the bigger company became exciting fairly quickly uh, because of being able to uh, work with other sales people and teams that had accounts that we didn't have. Um, and the fact that the, the team stayed together for quite some time and being able to continue development on projects and products, et cetera. So recovery was fairly quick, but they were shocked. The senior management team that you had, were they incentivized uh, with, with shares or, or any sort of incentive financially that they would benefit in the sale? Um, not formally, no, but they did benefit. How did they benefit? But it wasn't, it wasn't because they had, um, uh, we had no um, shares with anyone other than Ross and I. And so how did they benefit? There were, there were bonuses that went out to senior management. Tied to the successful sale? Um, tied, to, tied to a number of things. Um, not to a successful sale. We did not put any responsibility on them for that. We took that responsibility ourselves. So how did you get them to play ball? during? I mean, you, you, you shared with it when you needed them to know uh, – prior to the sale, they could have still, I'm assuming, derailed it. How did you get them to participate uh, in a positive way in the sale process, the senior managers? Um, they were just my team. They just did it because it was their job. That was part of it. Um, you know, I, I think that's pretty much a, a fair assessment. I mean, they, they did get, um, you know, agreements from the, uh, the acquiring company that they would have their jobs and, you know, they, they wound up with, uh, you know, signing, signing commitments and contracts, et cetera, with the new company. But during the process, um, they're just my team. So they did it. How did you ensure that they didn't tell anybody? Yeah. Wow. Um, I don't think it was any, I mean, we, we talked about it, we made it very clear, but it wasn't, um, there really wasn't any doubt that he would, that they would all do it, keep the confidentiality. They were just a great, a great team. Hmm. Do you ever see people around town now that you worked with during those years, socially or yeah, the grocery yeah. store? And how is it now that, uh, that a couple of years has passed? It's great. We've even got a private Facebook page for former employees that one of our staff started. Um, but we've got great relationships with, uh, with our team. So they got our over, ultimately they got over the shock <laughs> yeah. and, and the yeah. worry. Yep. And so you're in your forties, you've got this big check. You must be on the beach. What are you, what are you up to now? Well, um, one of the things I advise people to do is have hobbies and dreams outside of their business so that when they leave, they have something they want to do. And I definitely had that. I knew uh, I wanted to help kids explore careers 
I'm very passionate about getting kids started early, understanding what their their opportunities are. So now I've written uh, two children's books um, about exploring careers. So I've written one is called STEM Club Goes Exploring. And so that's helping kids in the science, technology, engineering, math kind of look at careers they could have. And the other one is called Kids Go to Work Day. Um, so I'm, I've got my books and then I'm also helping um, uh, create career fairs for Boys and Girls Club and, and uh, the Girl Scouts, et cetera, and really just trying to help the uh, students with their options so that they'll have a career they really want to do. Awesome. And, and what's the age group for those books, the ideal age? Um, the books are for like 8 to 13 Great. Kind of the the preteen, and it's that they're like they're on Amazon and in Barnes and Noble, and um, it's been a it's been a fun process, and it's definitely a passion project. That's a fantastic way to uh, to to give back as well. So uh, available at Amazon and and anywhere you kind of buy books. So that's great, Lois. I really appreciate you spending some time with us today and sharing your experience. It's uh, it's been great to, to learn a little bit more about it. Well, thank you. I I love your project because it's nice to know that there are um, resources out there to help us when we're going through such a big life-changing transaction. Well, thanks, Lois. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.